We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Take a look here at John chapter 4. Now, let me tell you what we're going to look at here. Um, Every once in a while, I'll speak out at Mount Hermon, California, and uh, it's kind of a Dallas seminary conference that we have yearly. And uh, you'll speak about three or four times, and one of the times you speak, they just tell you to speak on your sugar stick, just something that's just you like, that's just sweet to you. And um, there have been times that my sugar stick has been this text. It's just because it's so enjoyable and it means so much. And I'll tell you what it's about. It's the healing of the uh, royal official's son. Uh, Stay with me here. In the Gospel of John, there's four major uh, foundations to it. Number one is the deity of Jesus that he is the son of God. Number two is the death of Jesus. You don't see like in the other gospel, the synoptics, the growing rejection of Christ unto his death. No, his death is introduced in chapter two. Tear down this building in three days, I'll raise it up, a new temple, the body of Christ. And so you see his deity and the imminency and the purpose of his death, that he comes to die. And then you see the word cosmos, the world, that he didn't just come to die for Israel. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but to as many as did, to them he gave the right to become the children of God who believe in his name. That's you and I. So the deity, the death, and the, the, the cosmos, the world that he came for. And then the fourth thing is that of faith, that you see in the gospel of John, the development of faith. You're gonna see Nicodemus's faith, the woman at the well, from an immoral woman to a believer to an evangelist. You'll see in chapter nine, the blind man who becomes an advocate and then an apologist, uh, the blind man. You see even Lazarus, you see him, the friend of Jesus, raised by Jesus, eating with Jesus, sought to die, that uh, they were gonna put him to death with Jesus. You see the development of Peter and of the 12. You see seven great I am statements, seven great miracles. You see great discourses, a lot of red ink on the words of Christ. But you definitely see the development of faith. That faith in God isn't something that just comes out of nowhere. God forges it in us. And he will usually start with very vulgar, profane areas like your health, your marriage, Can a kid ever bring you to God on the dead run? Yeah. And so he talks about the forging of faith. And somehow when you look at John, you, I think more than any other gospel, you see yourself. That's me. That's me. In chapter, uh, incidentally, the word faith is mentioned in John 92 times. So we're going to show about how God sows it and raises it and brings it to fruition. In chapter three, we saw Jesus and Nicodemus. You must be born again. He was talking to a Jew who had a a theological problem on salvation. And then in chapter four was the woman at the well. She wasn't a Jew. She was a half Jew. She's Samaritan. And we talked here about a moral problem. Call your husband. I don't have a husband. I believe you've had five. 
And the guy you're living with now is not your husband. So she had a moral problem. And then in chapter uh, uh, four, at the end of chapter four, we're going to speak to a, a royal official from a Jew to a half Jew to a no Jew. He's a Gentile. And we're going to watch how God brings him to where within a few verses, he's going to become an evangelist. How do you do that? You, I'm going to show you eight things. Now, I'm normally not real good with enumerations, okay? I can leave you hanging, but I'm going to show you eight things that God did to bring this man to the place of where he was. And you're going to find your place in here at some place. You're going to find you. This is to the cosmos. It's to the world. It's to you. We begin in, chat, in uh, verse 46. The first thing you see, I want you to write down the term, no faith. This guy has no faith in God and no relationship to Jesus Christ. The only reason he's coming is that he's got a problem that nobody else can deal with. It says in verse 46, he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. Jesus said his first miracle was at Cana of Galilee. He had done a lot of wonderful things. And then he goes to Capernaum. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Capernaum is about 20 miles away from Cana. So this guy hops on his horse and he takes off from Capernaum to Cana because of the rumors about Jesus, of what he could do. And the reason he comes is because his son was sick at Capernaum. This is a royal official. He works for Herod. He's probably a Roman. He's a person of power and position and wealth and security. He is a success. He has notoriety. And he is not commanded by Jews. He commands Jews. Now he is coming to ask a Jew for help. Uh, he has no perceived need. If you did a movie, this would be Sylvester Stallone. Okay. This is a guy who has no perceived needs. Uh, he's got it all together. Question, can life deceive you about this? The, the peril of the mirror when you look at yourself, that somehow I really don't need anything. I've got it together. You very rarely will hear a graduation speaker get up and talk about uh, intentionally the inability of a human to live life without Jesus Christ. You will very rarely not take a course at a college that will condescend upon physical abilities as opposed to the superlativeness of knowing Jesus Christ. Very seldom. We, have a, we had a fellow that was an elder at our church years ago that was the head of the finance department at North Texas State. And so when you're in that position, you, no one can fire you. Okay. And so he would teach along in his finance classes to these 19, 20-year-olds. And periodically he would stop and say, incidentally, Y'all know this doesn't make a hill of beans. Let's go on. He would say, if you can't be married well and raise your kid well and have integrity and love your mate and be a good friend, your life's going to collapse with or without money. So let's continue. That's what you can do when you have tenure. 
And so this guy has got it made. I was speaking once in the Midwest at a church and a fellow walked in the green room where I was in and I looked at him and I said, if you ain't, and I mentioned the famous actor, if you're not his brother, you ought to be. And he said, I am. And uh, he said, and this is my brother's best buddy right here. He said, they met in youth group here in this church. I said, well, I'll be darned. Uh, could you get me in a movie? I just, <laughs> no, he couldn't. I said, when's the last time you saw him? He said, well, I was out there a few weeks ago in Southern California. Saw him there in his 20,000 square foot house. What do you do with 20,000 square feet? You got to get a golf cart to move around the house. Yeah, 20,000 square feet. And uh, with his starlet wife and everything. And he said, I said to him, you know, if you, you're at this point in your life, have you considered, you know, what we learned when we were kids about the person of Christ? And he said, he said to me with all honesty, he said, look, what do I need God for? Can God get your attention real quick? Well, that's where he was. What do I need God for? Uh, matter of fact, I could tell you another story. That's the great thing about the second service. You can just run all day, especially on New Year's. <laughs> I had a kid that was in the uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he was uh, going to an uh, autograph signing where the guy who was signing, I won't give you his name, but he was arguably the greatest football player that ever lived. And uh, he was getting something signed, and he said, Sir, can I ask you a question? If you were to die right now and stand before God, what would you say? And the guy said, you need to get out of my face. He was actually insulted that he could speak about him actually being called before the Almighty to answer for anything. He had it made. Jesus said, beware of riches. For even when man has an abundance, his life does not consist of wealth. It can deceive you. So this guy has no faith. He is the captain of his faith, or he is the master of his soul. You ever, you ever memorize that poem in junior high? It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. Who is Mr. Markham denying? It matters not how straight the gate. Who said that? Jesus. It matters not how charged with punishments the scroll. Doesn't matter how bad I am. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And then the next line is God says, you go to hell. It doesn't really say that, but I just, I thought it would be a good ending to it right there. Well, in verse 47, we go from no faith to desperation faith. All of a sudden, his life is rudely interrupted. Can God force himself into our life in a heartbeat? He can do it in less than a heartbeat. I know because I had one of them heartbeats. 
when all of a sudden I had a piece of plaque break off and stick in a descending artery, I had 100% blockage and within seconds I was at death's door. By God's grace, the head of the emergency team was in the next room, David Boots, who came storming in and took one look at me and said, you are having a myocardial infarction. Well, I didn't want to be infarcted by anything. I said, call what you need. And so they brought me back. God can, in a heartbeat, in the middle of the night, he can force himself. Remember the guy who said, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You have many goods laid up for many years. And that very night, the Lord said to him, fool, this night your soul is required. And then Jesus said, whose then shall these things be? Answer, we're going to put them on the curb. Okay. And so this guy in verse 47, heard, it says in verse 46, his son was sick at Capernaum. He'd heard Jesus had come out of Judah into Galilee. He's up north. He has no hope, but he has heard rumors that there's a man who can raise people from the dead. And he went to him and was imploring him. That's in the imperfect tense. It doesn't say that he implored him. It says he was continually pulling on his cloak and saying, I need you, I need you, I need you, I need you, I need you. God can bring you to that place. And he is imploring him to come down to heal his son. He was at the point of death. And so you may think you don't need God until all of a sudden your kid is sick. Until all of a sudden your health, your finances, your family, uh, your kidneys, your artery at the base of your skull because of a vertebrae that gets out of place. Because the radiologists say, sirs, sit down. You might have your wife come on in here. We've got back your MRI. Have a seat. Yeah. And so, generally, spiritual things don't rock our worlds. We're too insensitive. Generally, we don't wake up at night saying, I have fallen short of the righteousness of God. How might I approach him? I guess that might happen, but it generally doesn't. Generally, it's something about life that we thought we had it, and our little tower of Babel starts crumbling. You ever heard this from your Old Testament? Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. The man was a valiant warrior, and he was a leper. And so all of a sudden, he's calling out for the prophet communicated to him by the Jewish girl that had been taken captive. I wish that my master was with Elisha in Israel. He would heal him. Now that sounds like a pretty good idea. You couldn't get Naaman to discuss theology, but now he is willing to take a trip to see this prophet. And so we have what is called the desperation of faith. The prodigal son was sitting fat and happy 
until all of a sudden a famine hit and he's out of money and he's working for a Gentile and the Gentile makes him feed pigs. What's unclean to a Jew? Pigs. And he gives him a warning. Don't eat the pods the pigs are eating because in a famine, pigs are more important than people. So don't eat them pods. And he's envying a Gentile's pigs. And he comes to his senses and says, my father's servants have more than enough food. I am dying here with hunger. Eureka. I'll go home. I just discovered something. My life is intimately united to my father. And when I'm dead to him, I'm dead. So it takes pigs to do some evangelism sometimes. And so this man says, I need help. Need I remind you of the great Christian story of George Bailey? It's a wonderful life. He's got a brother who's getting the Medal of Honor, beautiful wife, four kids, business solid, when all of a sudden he's missing. How much money is he missing? $8,000, stupid Uncle Billy. He's missing $8,000. And the next thing you see, he's got Uncle Billy. You know what this means? It means scandal and bankruptcy and jail. Well, one of us is going, and it's not going to be me. The next scene, you see him at a bar doing something he's never done. He's praying. God, I'm not a praying man, but Heavenly Father, help me. You know, when you watch that clip, are you with me? When you watch that clip in the movie, the bar scene of George Bailey, the scene is grainy and it's almost fuzzy. And there's a reason. When they shot the scene, Jimmy Stewart, who had a, he was part method actor, he became his father, who was a hardware salesman in Indiana. And he thought about his father, the struggles that he made. And he broke in that scene. And if you watch him, he cries and he cries real tears. And they normally, after you shoot a scene, when they say cut, all the, everybody will applaud that's around the area. They didn't applaud. They realized that they had caught lightning, that Jimmy Stewart became George Bailey and he wept. And Capra said, uh, that's a wrap. And then he said to Jimmy, I shot it too far away. I need your face on the film. And so they took the strip of film of him at the bar and they took every frame and they blew it up into a mural. Then they took a picture of it, took the next frame, did a picture of it put it together in the film. And that's why the film gets up close and grainy because they knew they could not get that emotion again. God 
could you help me? And so that's George Bailey. Have you been there where you were moving through life fat, dumb, and happy? And then all of a sudden, God forced himself in your life. Paul heading off to Damascus when all of a sudden Paul is on the ground blind saying, who art thou, Lord? Well, in verse 48, we have what is called trusting faith. Jesus said to him, I'm sorry, he said in verse 47, come down, my son is at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, unless you, now let me point you something out. The word you there in Greek is in the plural. He's speaking to the man, but he's speaking about the Jewish crowd at Cana. Unless you Jews see signs and wonders you won't believe. It's not enough for me to pronounce a boy healed 20 miles away. You've got to see a genie go down and put his hands on him and raise him up. That's what you want, is you want a genie. That's your problem as a nation. You don't want forgiveness and healing. You want a quick fix from me. And so he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So I'm not going to placate you. I'm not going to go 20 miles away to Capernaum and put my hands on this kid and raise him up. No, you're going to have to play my game. And he says in verse 49, watch the play on words. This is what is called a hermeneutical landmark. It's like looking at devil's stump. You can see it a mile away. Sir, come before my child dies. Jesus said to him, what's the word? Go. Sir, come. Jesus said, no. You go. Why? Because your son lives. What do you mean he lives? I just whimmed him. I just whimmed him to be alive. And so he's alive. I'm not saying go because I'm going to heal him. I'm telling you right now, he's playing volleyball. That's the Hebrew right there. I just healed him from 20 miles away, from 20 miles away. You didn't speak his name. You don't even know his name. I don't need to know his name. I know where he is and I just healed him. And I know that right now he's healed. What are you going to do? You're a royal official. You command people. What Jesus has done, he has done what is called trusting faith. You want a magician, you're not going to get a magician. You're going to get a deity. And you're going to have to trust me. You remember when Elisha, when Naaman comes to Elisha for a healing, and he gets a letter from the Syrian king to give to the Jewish king that I need your understudy, Elisha, to give me a healing and I'm going to pay for it. And I brought an enormous amount of gold and silver and clothes. And so I, the victor, am going to command from you a healing. Let's go out with a healing. And Elisha, he rides up to Elisha's door. And so he's going to demand his healing because he's Naaman, the general. And Elisha doesn't go out to see him. He sends out his servant Gehazi, Don Nuts, <laughs> Tim Conway. Okay. 
Ralphie. He sends him out. Uh, he says, uh, no, he ain't coming out. He says, for you to go to the Jordan River and take your clothes off and jump in the river. And then when you dry off, jump in the river again. And then when you dry off, jump in the river again and again and again and again and again, seven times in the river of Israel with the God of Israel as your trust. Don't just give me a half gainer once into it. No, you go in seven times and you get naked seven times and you let us see leprosy seven times and you take your crown off and your cape off and your clothes off and your little old man in tights right there. You take them off and you wash seven times. Remember what he said? It's no, no other way. It's not going to cost you anything. But you're not going to come to me and demand a healing. You'll accept it as a free gift. It said that Naaman went away enraged. I thought the man would come out and wave his hands and heal the leper. And besides, don't that we have rivers up in Syria a lot better than this dirty little Jordan? And he had a servant that came to him and said, my father, if he'd have told you to do some impossible task, you'd have done it. All he asked you to do was trust him and wash and be clean. And he's really doesn't give you a plan B because those rivers won't clean you and our God won't clean you. He said, you're going to have to submit to him. All right. And so he went and he dipped seven times and it said on the seventh time, it said he came up from the water and his flesh was like baby's flesh. He was born again. Isn't that something? And that's the way God does. I need my healing. Sorry. You trust me. And so what's he going to do? Is he going to command for Jesus to leave? Jesus has got him boxed in. I'm God. Right here, if I was the director of The Chosen, which I should be. <laughs> Buddy, here's what I would do right here. I would have a scene where I would have this royal official looking at Jesus with the royal official's retinue behind him and Jesus with all his elves behind him. And I would have them just look at each other. Sir, come. Go. He lives. He's dying. He lives. Come. Go. And I would give it here a 15-second pregnant silence of the two eyes watching each other. And it going through that official's mind how do I play this hand? He's the only deliverer I know. He doesn't give me an option. It's his way or the highway. If I say no, I have no plan B. He's got me. 
Saddle up, boys. We're going home. And I think Christ brings us to those places of trust. The reason that I started seeking God, it was I was a, one of the great college athletes in the, of the 20th century. And my life was football. I turned down the Cincinnati Reds my senior year. I was a shortstop and I was good. Humble, but good. <laughs> and I turned them down. The guy that signed Johnny Bench, Tony Rebello, offered me a contract through the screen while I was in the on-deck circle. How would you like for us to send you to Texas A&M and you can play there and then you can come on with us? And I said, no, nah, I've already signed at the powerhouse North Texas State. I've turned down TCU and Navarro Junior College. So I'll be going there. And I remember Tony said, to each his own. I said, yes, sir. So uh, there was more glory in football. I had never been beaten with any consistency. And I came to North Texas. And uh, when I got here, football was more than a sport. It was my metaphysical purpose. And so I uh, broke this thing for the second time. And then I hurt this thing. Then I hurt this thing. Then I tore up my knee. Missed two seasons with it. And then I got cross of a quarterback coach. And then uh, God just broke me. And so I started looking in Christian magazines. You know, I wasn't looking for righteousness. I was looking for a way for Christ to make me a better football player. And uh, I was stumbling looking for him. And one day that's when the guy came to my room and sat and talked to my roommate and I listened over his shoulder. He said, are you a Christian? He said, yes. He said, what is a Christian? He said, it's somebody that keeps the 10 commandments. And the guy from the navigator said, you keep them. He said, you've never lusted for a woman. You've never lied to your parents. You've never stolen. You've never hated. You've never called a name. You broke one. You violated God. You broke all. And he said, that's why Jesus came to die is you can't keep them. But he doesn't want to be Sunday buddy. He doesn't want to be in the passenger seat. He wants what he deserves. And that's everything. And I listened to that. And the guy didn't know I was listening to him. And he shattered me. And uh, did I become a Christian? No, I didn't. Because I understood. I was a quarterback. I had a higher intelligence than the defensive end that he was talking to. And I understood. God will not offer out salvation in doses. He offers himself. And I have to take him. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. And I knew if I prayed and said, come into my life, he would. And he would move me out of the driver's seat. And long story short, I did. But he put me on that cul-de-sac that there was no plan B. I had to make the call. Me or God? Who would be the greater success? It was a hard decision. I was pulling a two, three in phys ed at the time. 
Just made a seven on a genetics test. Who should I trust? I'm going with God. And so I died. I died that day. And that's where this guy is. I want your soul. I want your soul. Well, watch this. In verse 48 or 49, come down before my child dies. Jesus said, go, your son lives. And here you got a 15 second pregnant clause of, of silence. And the man believed, what's it say? The word. I had to make a choice and I went with him. I believe the word that he spoke and I started off. So he has trusting faith. I'm going with him. But it's not for salvation. It's for the healing of my child. In verse 52, watch this. I'm sorry, 51. As he was now going down, his slaves met him saying his son was living. And he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Notice he's not interested that the boy is merely alive. That's not what interests me. Fellas, I need to know when he miraculously came alive because I know when Jesus said that. He said it at one o'clock in the afternoon, the seventh hour. Now I need to know from you, when did that boy get better? You know why? Because there's something a lot bigger here than a kid's life. Because if he got out of that bed at one o'clock, God has come among us. So when did he get well? Verse 52, they said yesterday at one o'clock, the seventh hour. Key word, yesterday. You know what that tells you? That official did not say, I'm going back, your son lives, and beat a path 20 miles back to Capernaum. He didn't. He stayed that day. He spent the night, ordered a pizza, rested in his room. Do you know why? Because he thought, if he is not the son of God, then it doesn't matter if I hurry back, that boy's dead. But if he is the son of God, there's no need to hurry back because that boy's alive. And he rested. In peace, I will lay down and sleep for thou alone, O Lord, dost make me to dwell in safety. He abandons all to Christ. And so we have what is called resting faith. When that guy told me, here's what you got to do. You've got to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and believe in him as Lord and Savior, and he will come in. It's an experience of you and God. And he said that I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him. He said to as many as received him, he gave the power to become sons of God. That is a promise. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That is a promise, he told me. 
And you've got to stand on that promise. And I didn't do it until finally God, make a long story short, he just pushed me off the ledge. And I said, and I knelt down in my room and I said, God, I am 21 years old and I have tried for 21 years to do this and I can't make a life. If you can't do it, I said, it can't be done. And I felt like in Pilgrim's Progress, whenever Christian takes the burden off his back and I just kind of went, it's his. And I slept that night and I didn't feel like taking harp lessons or anything. The room didn't glow, but I woke up and something had changed. God had drawn near and that's all I can say. And that's what happens to this man after resting faith. You see verse 51, as he was now going down the next day, the slaves met him saying his son was living. Buddy, here's the scene. Ready? Because I'm going to bring you into the movie with me, so I need you to direct it. Okay. He's riding off to Capernaum, and he sees his servants coming to him. And he noticed their own donkeys beating them donkeys to make them go faster. And he just stops. And he's trying to read how they're coming. Whenever my son John was playing professional baseball, he would finish his games late at night and he would call us after the game, usually about 10.30. And there was a way that he would call if he was 0 for 4 in an error. He played shortstop. We'd pick up the phone. Hey, what's happening? That was John. Hey, what's going on? 0 for 4. But if he had two doubles, three RBIs, and a couple of sparkling plays, you'd answer the phone. He'd go, what's up? <laughs> so the phone would ring and Teresa and I would tremble. And I would say, answer it. And I would hear, what's up? All right. And so he's looking at these people coming to him. Are they going, what's up? Are they going, oh Lord, you have a black tie? They're watching him. And they're happier and happier and happier. And this is called joyful faith. Does he know yet what has happened? Has he gotten down to the issue of his soul? No. But there's a verse often in the Psalms that says this about the obedient man, thou dost meet him with blessings. Whenever Abraham met Melchizedek at Jerusalem, he met Melchizedek and Melchizedek brought wine and bread and met him with blessing. C.S. Lewis, when he got converted, called himself the most reluctant convert in England. He said, God brought me kicking and screaming in heaven. And then he wrote a book after his conversion. You know what the name of it was? Surprised by Joy. I got up the next morning after getting saved and went down in the athletic dorm where you ate mystery meat. Have you ever been to an athletic dorm? And I just sat there 
and I would look at people and feel differently about them. Whenever I would sin, those times once every three months, it wasn't funny anymore. It was ugly. Something had changed. My Bible I was drawn to. My music changed. I wrote a letter to my mother and thanked her and dad for the way they had uh, raised me. She called me and thought I was in a cult. <laughs> they framed the, the letter. Something changed. Remember the old Bill Gaither song? Something touched me. Someone touched me and now I'm whole. And so I was surprised by joy. This man is making his move toward God. God is pushing him. God is torturing him, bringing him, stretching him with a muscle he's never used. And now God is like God comes to him and says, it's okay. That boy is alive. Well, uh, you know, we all might not have those that are about to die come alive. But the Bible does say that he believes in me. He will not be disappointed or ashamed. Whenever I got saved, people said to me, what is it, what's it like? They would ask me, guys that knew me, well, what, what's it like? And here's what I told them. I said, you know, when you get those glass balls full of snow and you shake them up and it's a blizzard going around, yeah. And I said, it's like my glass ball has been set down. And everything is settling. C.S. Lewis used to say that his mother, when she would take him to the, the plays, back before radio or TV, she'd take him to the plays. And he said, I love to go behind the stage to see behind and get understanding as to how everything was arranged to see behind what you saw. And that's what I felt like. I now knew why the creation was here and what the plan of God was and who Christ was and what he did and what he was going to do, what he could do, what he was going to do someday. My, my glass ball settled and there was joy. My grades improved. There is a God. There really is. Things began from the inside out to change. It was like I was born again because I cut loose. I burned my bridges like this guy had to do. He had to make a call. No safety net. You got to trust me. So he is met with joy. And in verse 51 and 53, it is called saving faith. They said his son was living and he said, when did he get better? They said yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him and the father knew it was that hour in which Jesus said, verse 50, he believed the word. Verse uh, 52 or uh, 53, Jesus said, your son lives right now. And he himself believed. Now it said up in verse 50, the man believed the word. But that was word about physical life. Now it says in 53, he himself believed. 
What does that mean? That's not about that Christ can give physical life. It's called spiritual faith. He went from physically getting my kid alive to spiritually. This isn't about my kid. This is me. This is the son of God. God has made himself known to the Jewish nation and I got grafted in to be a lesson to them of what he can do. And he himself believed. It's called personal faith. It's called spiritual faith. It's like I had to realize that Christ wasn't going to make me a better football player. He was going to save my soul. And that's when it went deep. Did I ever tell y'all that whenever I was playing football at North Texas, I wrote two letters to the men I respected most to give me some help in life because I was stumbling so bad. See, I thought I was a good little Methodist boy until I got away from the Methodist church and got off by myself. And then I turned out to be Al Capone, you know. And so I wrote Billy Graham and I wrote Paul Bear Bryant, the best coach and the best evangelist. And I wrote him a letter and said, I'm a sophomore at North Texas State and I was wanting something about life. What would you say? Bear Bryant wrote me a letter and said, Tommy, I am highly flattered that a quarterback from another school would write me. Yeah, yeah. However, it violates a principle to counsel a player from another school because Alabama was worried we were going to knock them off that year for national championship. <laughs> and so I kept my Bear Bryant letter, I can't help you. And then I got a letter back from Billy Graham. And it said, Tommy, I was reading it like this. There's a lot of college students here in the 60s asking these questions now. The problem with man is man. It is sin. And until I threw the letter away. Yeah. Why did I throw it away? He was talking about sin. I guess I wanted Billy Graham to write and say, Tommy, if you'll throw your post patterns earlier before the break, you'll be better. He talked about sin. I didn't want to talk about sin. I threw it away. God broke that. And so now I got to the place that I said, I'm, I realize my problem isn't football. My problem's me. And so I invited Jesus in and I now had a spiritual faith. A guy named Augustine once said that most men are squatters, meaning they will not acknowledge the sovereignty of God. They just squat on his property. I will eat his food with my body, enjoy his air, his gravity on this world and his universe light with my eyes, sound with my ears that he gave me and I will enjoy all of life, but I will not submit myself and worship him. And Augustine said, men go to hell because they're squatters. They enjoy what God made and they won't acknowledge him. I was a squatter. And so I lifted my eyes and I said, oh God. And then the next thing you see in verse 53 the father knew it was that hour which Jesus said, your son lives and he believed. So now we have spiritual salvation. 
that started just with him getting bumped from the outside, then getting put in a cul-de-sac, being forced to a decision. And now he is, he puts his faith in Christ. He himself believed. What do the last three words say of verse 53? Can you see them? It says his whole household. It's not just for me. He gets home and he gets his family circled up. He says, y'all circled up here. Little Cletus over here is feeling a lot better and we're glad. But I want you to know something. The reason he's not feeling bad is that a man said to me at the very hour, 20 miles away, your son lives. And that man, I came to him because he is the son of God. And so he says to his family, we're nice to have little brother back with us, but the little brother's got to die again someday. And so do I, and so do you. And I'm telling you right now, this family is about to be a new family. He became now a preaching faith. We're all going to believe. C.T. Studd, the great evangelist, he was one of the greatest athletes in English cricket. He and his brothers, his father got converted at a, Billy, at a um, uh, D.L. Moody outreach in the mid-1860s, 1870s. His father came home and got all of his sons down and he said, y'all are going to become Christians too. And they had to think through it. And C.T. Studd became a Christian. His daddy said would ask him every day, this English Lord, he was asked these boys, are you saved yet? Are you saved yet? He said that we got saved out of self-defense. Okay. And uh, C.T. Studd wasn't walking with God as he should until his older brother almost died of tuberculosis. And he fell before God and he said, God, if you'll give my brother life, I'll serve you. I'll give you everything that I have. And he lived and he did. And he took all of his wealth from his father's estate, an English lord, and he gave it away. He kept, I think he said, 5,000 pounds for himself and his wife. And his wife, this is the woman you want to marry. His wife said, did you say you'd give it all to God? He said, yes. She said, give it. I don't want to be spending what belongs to God. So he gave away the other 5,000 pounds. He gave it to a fledgling university that had begun in Chicago called Moody Bible. And he got it started. And so that is family faith. And at the end of verse 54, he himself believed his whole household. He is now a living faith and he is telling everybody what Christ did. When I got saved, I called my buddy Joe Gonzalez from Waco, Texas. And I said, you know, the peace we've been looking for, I found it. And we got together and Joe became a Christian with me. Uh, my girlfriend, Catherine Wilson. I went to Waco, got my 66 blue Ford Fairlane. It was sweet. I went over to her house. We sat out by the curb and talked. And I said, I've spent most of my life around you. I said, I can't be in heaven without you. And I asked her, I said, you need to believe this. Uh, I went to my brother, Bob. And I said, what we've been looking for, we found it. And I led Bobby to Christ. I had a brother named Jimmy, played for Waco Richfield. I went down there and I got all the athletes together. I being a Richfield High School legend. And I got them all together and I talked to them about my conversion. And my little brother became a Christian. I went to my grandfather who had prostate cancer. 
And I said, granddaddy, are you going to be with God in heaven? He said, I hope so. I said, you don't have to hope so with God. You can know so. I shared my faith with him. Uh, I went to my Sunday school that Pawnee Martin from McGregor, Texas used to teach when I was in junior high. And I said, could I speak to all of these, my former pals? And I shared with them. Went to North Texas State. Me and another guy shared the faith to our football team. And I got up in front of these guys and shared how I had come to know Christ. They stared at me like I had two heads. Is that really him? Yeah. I said, God saved me. And out of that, two guys named John Bowles and Clark Lawrence became Christians. I named my second born son, John Clark Nelson, after those two Christian guys. Uh, went to my 50th reunion two years ago. They asked me to give a devotional, scaredest I've ever been. A prophet is without honor in his own hometown. So I went and got up and spoke to people who knew who I was. And I shared with them about the gospel. I got an email a couple of weeks ago from one of my buddies that I was in junior high with named John. And our uh, team manager named Joe whose daddy ran the liquor store in Waco, Texas. And John and Joe said they wanted to meet me halfway to Waco. That's Alvarado and talk about Christ. So that's what we're meant to do. At the end of every gospel, it ends with the Great Commission. The beginning of the book of Acts ends with the Great Commission. The end of Revelation says the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. This guy went from, did you get all eight of them? No faith to desperate faith, to trusting faith, to resting faith, to as he approached, there was joy. And then there was personal salvation, faith for his family and faith for the world. In other words, he became a royal official, finally. Father in heaven, everybody in this room is at one of these two pl these places. There are people here that don't believe, people that are sitting fat and happy. There are people that are getting rocked by COVID, our kids, our marriage, or the economy, our age, or something, and are going to start looking to Jesus the genie. And he's going to make them go down to Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God. And they're going to face a time of silence as to who's going to run things. Them are Christ. And when they trust him, they're going to be met with joy. And then you're going to take it down into their hearts that you're not here just to fix them. You gave yourself. And that's where you want to be in their lives. And then they're going to tell it to their kids and their grandkids and to the hospice team before they die. And so I pray, O Alpha and Omega, you would continue your work in Jesus' name. Amen.